0: Welcome to the Listen to Your Gut podcast with international best-selling author Jeannie Patel-Thompson. Because your body is your subconscious. Your body is the densest part of your soul.
1: I'm 56 years old overweight male, but he came in knowing that he had rheumatoid arthritis, ankylosing spondylitis, and Crohn's disease. So he was a walking autoimmune, for any of you that don't know all those words, he had a ton of autoimmune things going on. He was living on prescription uh, steroids, living on prescription opioid medications, pain medicines, every single day taking steroids and pain medicines, Fast forward about eight weeks, he just was in awe about how great he felt despite uh, coming in kicking and screaming. And by the end of his 12-week program, he was actually off of his steroid and pain medicines.
0: Hi, Jeannie Patel-Thompson here with Jenny Berman from Berman Health and Wellness. And we are going to be discussing the functional medicine approach to inflammatory bowel disease and autoimmune disease in general. So Jenny, do you want to tell us where your expertise and interest in this field comes from? Give Tell us a little bit about yourself.
1: Absolutely. So I am a physician assistant by trade. Uh, however, you know, this getting into functional medicine and specifically into gut health and irritable bowel disease and autoimmune disease in general really comes from my own personal history. Uh, I was always a competitive athlete, very healthy, no issues, no that i know knew of at the time autoimmune conditions uh and then going through high school i actually ended up with severe eczema and psoriasis it was so bad i was on oral steroids at the age of 16 just really um detrimental to me all the way through high school. Fast forward a little bit into into physician assistant school. I was actually in my last leg of school, working on my thesis, preparing for graduation, a wedding, waiting on my white coat, and got really, really sick. Uh, I ended up in the hospital days before my white coat ceremony and had to beg them to let me out. Uh ultimately came down to us having some severe GI issues and my liver enzymes were extremely elevated long story short because this is 5 years of trying to figure out what was going on and went to three different GI doctors and no one could help me I was just getting being given pill after pill after pill taking 20 pills a day just to try to keep myself uh, stable enough that I could actually work and I ran into a a uh, board-certified Institute of Functional Medicine provider that actually really helped me to understand and figure out what was going on. And basically it came down to the fact that I was having food sensitivities and no one had discussed that with me before. Um, so that's where I really got interested in learning more about gut health and functional medicine and all the issues that I've been going through. I went through 15 years of schooling, three different GI doctors, and no one had brought that to my attention before. And I told myself, I'm, I, if I could help one person to not go through what I went through, I will be as happy as can be. Uh, and so that just led this path of getting into functional medicine and really helping individuals to treat problems and not just symptoms and really figure out what's going on from the inside out.
0: So you now, as a functional medicine practitioner, if you have a client coming in with IBD, IBS, SIBO, what describe to us your approach and what are, you know, do you have a certain protocol that you follow? Um, Do you have standard testing? Are you relying on your intuition or how the person appears? Like, tell us your procedure around that. How you, and how is that kind of, well, I guess when you tell us, we'll know how that difference from say naturopathy or your standard MD.
1: Sure. Yes. Great question. So initially when clients come in, we will do a very detailed medical history. You know, they may come in and say, I have Crohn's disease. This is my problem, or I have IBS and no one can help me. This is my problem. But in our world, going back into their medical history is extremely important and really understanding from childhood until their you know, elderly years, what's going on, what have they been through, what kind of traumas, what kind of medications have they been on? All of that is very important to kind of guide on what path we need to take as far as evaluating and treating them. Commonly when it comes to irritable bowel disease specifically, we will do food sensitivity and food allergy testing and really be able to fully assess the Environment of the gut, the gut biome. We'll also check specific vitamin levels and levels like a cortisol, which we know uh, cortisol is a steroid hormone released from the adrenal glands that can also impact our gut health as well. So we'll do a series of blood testing where we can actually assess for food allergies, food sensitivities, and these vitamin deficiencies to know exactly where we need to start as far as gut health goes. That may differ from others as, you know, a lot of the traditional medicine MDs, gastrointestinal doctors, um, they oftentimes will say, okay, well, let's go do a colonoscopy. Okay, your colonoscopy is clear. Why don't you just take this medication for diarrhea or take this medication for constipation instead of actually identifying the cause of the abnormal gut environment?
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And also, I I recently did a podcast with um, a food intuitive. So she's a former professional. Well, she is still a professional chef, but sure. um, at a certain age, her gifts that she would had in childhood and then, you know, as most children, you don't see that you don't believe that and then got buried and then they reemerged. So she works um, almost exclusively now as a food and health intuitive. And we were discussing the food allergy sensitivity testings and how they just provide a snapshot. So I like the way you said, we do all that and it gives us a place to start. Because I think this is something that most people don't think about with the blood allergy testing, is that that's like right now today? You haven't improved your microbiome, you haven't reduced your inflammation, you haven't done any mind body healing around events that are tied to certain foods, and any of those things can completely shift.
1: Has that been your experience? Absolutely, and like you said, you have to treat the whole body inside to out, head to toe. So you have to. Connect the experience, the traumas that have occurred, the cortisol, the HPA axis, hypothalamus, pituitary, adrenal axis, which is our stress axis in our body that is often disrupted if our gut biome is also disrupted. Those two go hand in hand. So I 100% agree with you that it gives us a starting point of where can we start to reduce the inflammation internally but then where are we going to go as far as a whole gut healing protocol and we tell our clients when they come in with any type of gut issues this is not a one day fix it's not a one week fix or even a one month fix i mean gut healing is an entire protocol that we follow that could take anywhere from three months to 12 months really depending on what we're finding and what we're experiencing
0: And do you, speaking of that HPA axis, because I know from Dr. Gabor Matei's first book, When the Body Says No, he was really big on that HPA axis. Are there any mind-body therapies or techniques that you found really helpful for people to getting that under control and working functionally?
1: Absolutely. you know, I certainly think that finding a the proper balance of exercise is very important to stabilizing HPA access dysfunction, where we know too much exercise is not good for the HPA access too intense, but also not enough exercise is not, you know, that's not going to work either. In addition to things like meditation, but we also use some amino acids that are helpful with stabilizing cortisol response and stabilizing the HPA access. So things like L-theanine or inositol uh, will be some of the vitamins, supplements, minerals that we'll use to support the HPA access as well. I'm very big into counseling. I think it's really important to find a certified counselor that you connect with and that you can communicate with. So absolutely, I, there's, you know, exogenous factors, outside factors that can help with restabilizing the HPA access.
0: And are you seeing, um, for most of your clients, are they coming in with some version of leaky gut happening?
1: Most definitely. And I, I would, you know, like to say that majority of us have a leaky gut of some extent due to one reason or another, whether it was a trauma that happened back in our high school years or a medication that we had to take at one point in our life, or just the, Act of what we've been eating over the last 10 to 15 years. Um, but I would, you know, I like to think that majority, not that I like to think, but I do think in my opinion, that majority of us have some type of leaky gut or gut permeability.
0: And so what's your, how would you go about addressing that for someone?
1: So again, you know, really assessing the medical history and looking at their gut health is important. So looking at the food sensitivities. Now, we do food sensitivity testing through blood work, uh, as opposed to skin testing. So we actually look at the immunoglobulin G sensitivities and immunoglobulin E, which are allergies. We look at both of them knowing uh, that they can have similar type reactions, but they're two different antibodies. So that's really important to us assessing again how people are absorbing certain vitamins we know there are certain vitamins like vitamin b12 and ferritin which is your iron storage uh, are absorbed through the small bowel so if we're not absorbing those nutrients then those levels are going to be low on the blood test which also could be a sign of leaky gut or gut permeability but then going through their symptoms so when they first come in and do their medical evaluation with us if they're experiencing things like hair loss, afternoon fatigue, depression or anxiety, eczema or psoriasis, bloating, headaches, um, you know, the sleep issues, these are all very common symptoms associated with leaky gut or gut permeability.
0: So someone I'm amazed at how healthy and robust you look because you've not too long ago had another baby.
1: (laughs) I did. Yes. She's four months old now.
0: Yeah. So what are you doing for your own health to, you know, because a newborn is probably one of the most stressful times for anyone with a history of a gut issue. What are you doing for yourself to, to support and mitigate that stress during this time?
1: Absolutely. And I will be the first to tell you, I don't sleep enough. I talk about it all the time, but between not only having a newborn who thankfully is a pretty good sleeper, but running a business and treating clients and all the things, I definitely don't sleep enough. So that's one area I'm trying to work on. Um, Because we know that plays into HPA access dysfunction and gut health as well. But I really practice what I preach with my clients. I'm very focused on a protein-based high fiber diet. um, But I also check my own food sensitivities and practice gluten-free and dairy-free meal plan. As I know, that's what works best for me and my gut biome. As far as being able to supplement outside of that, Uh, exercise is extremely important for my cortisol control. So I'm an avid exerciser regularly throughout the week. I also take my vitamins and supplements every day. I think that's really important for me taking cortisol calm, making sure that I'm utilizing my folate level, my folate supplement, vitamin D is really important for me, Uh, obviously taking prenatals with a newborn. But I would say from the food perspective is really focusing on my proteins and my cooked vegetables. Getting enough fiber in the diet is extremely important.
0: So when you, I would like you to clarify, because you said fiber, high fiber and cooked veggies. Can you explain to us what that actually looks like? Give us some foods.
1: Okay, absolutely. So I am sure um, at least twice a day, I'm getting something like a cooked broccoli, cauliflower, asparagus, Brussels sprouts, even cooked carrots, cauliflower rice, um, is really important for me to be getting at least twice a day, so the very, Fibrous cooked veggies, and then I also will do a non-soluble fiber, like a salad, at least once a day. So oftentimes with dinner, we'll have a salad plus a protein plus a cooked vegetable. Salads are great, but it's more of a non-soluble fiber. So the body doesn't absorb that completely for fiber intake, but it does help with keeping the bowels healthy and keeping us to move stool through the bowels rough, it's a little bit more of a roughage, right? Of, as far as vegetable goes. And so initially, when I'm working with my gut healing supplements, I actually have them pull back on raw vegetables, I say, let's eliminate raw vegetables for a period of time to allow the gut to heal because it is very, it is harder to digest raw vegetables. Uh, and the body's not technically absorbing it as a fiber. So initially, with my gut healing Clients, we will start out with lots of cooked vegetables. It could even be things like zucchini and squash, eggplant. Um, although we have to be careful, those have lectins in them. So we certainly have to be careful with our lectin sensitive patients, which is a, probably a story for another day. So and then we'll start to reintroduce some of the raw vegetables as they go through a gut healing process.
0: Well, I'm, I'm sorry, but I have to jump on the lectin thing. So (laughs) when you
1: say lectin sensitive
0: patients, are you, cause the, the Stephen Gundry lectin thing has been just all over the internet pushed so hard. And are you saying that in your experience, only some of your patients are sensitive to lectins and others do just fine with them?
1: Yes. And of course, it's all about uh, the amount, right? Everything in moderation. So I would never push someone to eat lectins for every meal a day and have them consistently. But we do find that some of our clients tolerate lectins better than others. Uh, And so I'm not one that will completely eliminate lectins from every gut health perspective patient. If they tolerate it, or if their sensitivities say that they can have zucchini and squash, have zucchini and squash once a week, but let's not overdo it with having zucchini, squash, eggplant, tomatoes, and cucumbers all in the same day. Right.
0: And and also the other big one that people often talk about are the tomatoes with the skin and the seeds, right. like the removing seeds, yeah. the skin, removing the seeds, you can get rid of most of the lectins. So then that becomes more easy. And if you look at Italian, traditional Italian cooking, they always remove the skin and the seeds.
1: Right. Right. <laughs> And it's funny you say that because i was just talking with a client today who just got back from italy and she was like i had no gut issues while i was in italy i could eat anything and everything it was so amazing and i was like well they do a lot of that prep to to remove some majority of the lectins and everything is made fresh and there's no preservatives and things to you know extend the shelf life so it just makes such a big difference but yeah, as you know, coming back to tomatoes, it's the same thing with bell peppers, which are a lectin as well, removing the skins and the seeds will help with removing the lectin component. But who's going to go through that while they're cooking their bell peppers?
0: <laughs> yeah. And also, um, I did a podcast with um, a doctor in Seattle who specialized in hormone issues. And she said every single one of her clients who's gluten intolerant goes to Europe can eat bread and pasta with no issues because they have not mucked with the wheat grain over there. And we have genetically modified and hybridized and selectively bred our wheat grains into something that is, you know, is not really recognizable for for most of humanity. So, and then they go to Europe and their body's like, oh, this one is fine. So, you know, that's another huge, I mean, I think that's a lot of people I know will only buy pasta that is um, organic pasta made and imported from Italy. Uh, And that's what I do for my kids because my kids have no gut issues and I want to keep it that way.
1: Right, right. (laughs) Yeah. And we have clients that will say the same thing when they go to Europe, they're like perfect over there. So it's truly amazing the difference in what we have here versus there.
0: So let's talk about the impact of cortisol, because you mentioned that a number of times on the gut lining. And why don't you start by telling people um, the role of cortisol in the body and how it can get imbalanced? And then what do you do?
1: So cortisol is our hormone that's released from our adrenal glands. And it is supposed to be released in times of fight or flight. So cortisol is actually a good thing. It helps to save us in certain situations where our body needs to be able to fight um, or, or flight, you know, whichever of the two. So it's actually a good hormone. However, for many, many people, it often gets to a point where it's on constant overdrive or our body, our adrenal glands, which sit right above our kidneys and the abdomen, Our adrenal glands are constantly releasing cortisol due to what we've already talked about in HPA axis dysfunction. So our adrenal glands—it's called a negative feedback to the hypothalamus and pituitary, which are in our brain. And when the adrenal glands release cortisol, then that tells the brain to release more hormones from the pituitary and adrenal, or the pituitary and the hypothalamus. And this is a constant cycle that is going on and it ends up causing a dysfunction where the brain and the adrenal glands cannot figure out, okay, is the body in a fight or flight state right now, or is it relaxed right now? It's not sure. And so it's just constantly releasing these hormones cortisol is a steroid. And so it actually can break down the gut lining and lead to more gut permeability. Most of the times the cortisol levels will initially become elevated and then chronically elevated from some type of trauma, whether it's a physical trauma, emotional trauma, mental trauma, could be going through medical school, it could be uh, going through a divorce, having financial issues, having um, childhood Issue with childhood abuse or verbal abuse you know there's really many many reasons that cortisol levels can increase they can also increase from medications from alcohol use from food sensitivity so if your body is constantly ingesting something that it's sensitive to or that's inflammatory that could cause cortisol to go up the downside to the cortisol levels being chronically elevated is it can cause the body to hold on to abdominal fat It can increase our blood sugar levels. It can infect our sleep pattern, our energy levels. It can cause more inflammation or cytokines. Um, Cytokines are inflammatory markers that can actually get to our brain and alter uh, our brain hormones and causing anxiety and depression. So it's really a systemic issue, meaning head to toe, inside to out, when this cortisol level is elevated.
0: And then what are your treatments that you use for um, people who have that cortisol imbalance?
1: Yeah, so the most common, which I had mentioned earlier, is we'll go towards the amino acids. So things like L-theanine, inositol, even uh, GABA or uh, utilizing magnesium, which is, uh, an, it's a vitamin and not obviously an amino acid, but we try to go a more natural ro- route of getting the adrenal glands to calm down and to decrease the release of the cortisol so that the body can actually process the stress response more normally. In addition to that, uh, we have to make sure that our macronutrients, meaning proteins, carbohydrates, and fats are where they should be for the individual, Sugar and cortisol go hand in hand together. So if blood sugar is unstable, the cortisol levels will often rise and vice versa. If the cortisol levels are high, blood sugar levels are typically unstable. So we really focus from a nutrient perspective of making sure that we're getting enough protein in the diet and really balancing that with our carbohydrates and fats in the diet to make sure that we're getting more blood sugar stability. Again, we have to identify the cause of cortisol elevation. So is it coming from a past trauma or is it coming from a food sensitivity or a current medication? So again, trying to not only decrease the cortisol release but treating the problem and not just the symptom.
0: Well, you mentioned the cytokine um, element. Can you discuss the antibody and cytokine
1: reactions that lead to autoimmune disease? Absolutely. So 70% of our immune system or some studies now are saying even more than that starts in our gut. Uh, And so coming back to gut permeability, if the gut lining is broken down, what happens is as we ingest different foods and particles, these particles and toxins are getting out of the intestinal tract and into our tissues and into the bloodstream. The immune system is triggered by that um, because it's not normal to have these toxins penetrating our tissues. So the immune system responds by creating what we call antibodies. Antibodies are inflammatory markers. And those inflammatory markers are systemic. That's what goes around and attacks things like our thyroid or our joints or our gut or our skin and causes the autoimmune diseases of Hashimoto's disease or um, autoimmune arthritis, rheumatoid arthritis, eczema or psoriasis, again, depression, anxiety, cytokines are actually the antibodies that can cross the blood brain barrier and getting to the brain to affect the hormones of the brain. So long story to say that antibodies are developed from our gut and our gut environment and how much the immune system is reacting to these toxins that are penetrating into our tissues.
0: That's so interesting. And so I have another question about the, um, food allergy testing when you're testing for the immunoglobulins. Um, What, so let's say you test someone and they show that they're sensitive to certain foods. How do you approach them um, to deal with that sensitivity? Like, do you, do you say, Oh, just stay away from it? Or do you say stay away from it for a period of time and then test a reintroduction? Like what's your procedure with that?
1: Yeah, so our gut healing protocol, we will eliminate for a period of time. So we typically do an eight-week elimination with the best that we can. You know, sometimes there's so many things that show up because somebody has a very leaky gut and it may not be reasonable to eliminate every single item. Um, But we do the best we can to do a food elimination based on their sensitivities for eight weeks. And then we go through the gut healing protocol of utilizing L-glutamine, which is an amino acid, or potentially butyrate, um, depending again on the individual and their health history. Uh, we will also, again, like I said, make sure that the vitamin levels are being replaced the way they should be based on their lab work, controlling cortisol levels, making sure we're fueling their body appropriately with the right proteins, carbs, and fats. So we work with our clients on a weekly basis through this process of optimizing their gut health based on the fuel that we're getting into their body the elimination of the food and replacing the right amino acids the amino acids are important because they help with regenerating the gut lining um, the little villi in the intestines getting the junctions to the tight junctions to close back up so really regenerating the gut lining to make it thick and healthy again and then we try after about an eight to twelve week period depending on their their history and the extent of their leaky gut, we try to do a formal food reintroduction. When we do the reintroduction, we'll do typically a protocol of three days on, four days off uh, of any particular food one at a time, one item at a time. And the reason for that is we're looking to challenge what we call a histamine level. So we wanna bring the food back for three days and see if we can challenge them to a certain histamine level But then we wait four days with them not having that food to make sure there's no delayed response, uh, which can happen as we challenge histamine levels.
0: And then so let's say you bring that food back for three days and the person has, say, a mild reaction response to it, then what do you do?
1: Then we say okay we're going to bring that one back out and continue through this gut healing process for another four weeks, and we will rechallenge it again in four weeks and see is the mild reaction the same, uh, or are we continuing to see improvement. Through that process, if they have a mild reaction, I'll say, okay, let's, you know, pull back on that food. Let's give you another week of not reintroducing anything else and see if we can get you back to a baseline. If we do, then we'll pick a different food that we can try to reintroduce at that time while we're waiting on food A um, to reintroduce again and back in four weeks. If we are successful at reintroducing a food, then I typically will tell our client, okay, we've reintroduced it and you did well, but I don't recommend having that food more than twice a week. Um, So, you know, say it's egg, egg white, we've reintroduced that and you tolerate it. That's great. But let's stick to just two times a week of having that egg white, because we don't want to get to a point where we're at a constant histamine challenge and your symptoms will come back.
0: That's very wise. Yeah, the I talk a lot about that for food tolerance thresholds. You right. know, like, it's not just about can I have this food? It's often how often can I have this food? Sure. What does my body feel about it? Um, tell me why you prefer the um, blood allergy testing versus the skin testing?
1: So I personally have never seen a skin testing for IgG, which is sensitivity. Maybe there is one that you could uh, tell me about, but I don't think so. Um, So the, the skin testing is usually just IgE, which is just allergen testing, and it doesn't give us a full picture of what's going on. As we mentioned, there's two different immunoglobulins to foods and you can have very similar reactions to IgG and IgE. So if we're only doing the skin testing, we're not getting the full picture. Through the blood testing or some people even do the finger prick testing uh we're able to get the full picture of the immunoglobulins as far as igg and ige and generally we can test more foods that way uh, a lot of times with the skin testing they may prick you 12 times and then tell you to come back in two months and prick you 12 more times for different foods the blood testing that we do for IgG, we're actually able to look at 184 different foods at one with one blood draw. Mm -hmm.
0: And so can you walk us through, walk us through a client story? I mean, obviously just give them a fake name or something, but can you walk us through a client story of someone coming to you and then the tests you did and then how, and then tracking their improvement, just so someone can get an idea of, of the story behind what it it could be like to come to a functional medicine practitioner.
1: Absolutely. We have so many phenomenal stories with people who come in with XYZ diagnosis and they don't even realize that they have food sensitivities or gut health issues. Um, this particular client did know he had gut health issues. He came in, um, 56 years old overweight male uh, and specifically overweight because he just couldn't exercise. He was in such bad shape that physiologically and physically that he could not exercise. But he came in knowing that he had rheumatoid arthritis, ankylosing spondylitis, and Crohn's disease. So he was a walking autoimmune for any of you that don't know all those words, He had a ton of autoimmune things going on. He was living on prescription, uh, steroids, living on prescription opioid medications, pain medicines every single day, taking steroids and pain medicines. He was a business owner, entrepreneur, business owner still working, even taking opioids. Uh, so he, came, his wife actually pushed him through the door and said he needs help. He came in kicking and screaming. But uh, we went through his medical history, talked about these three diagnoses that he's had, you know, blood in the stool, goes for a colonoscopy every three months, things aren't getting better, taking the um, um, immunosuppressants as well for Crohn's disease. So he was just on a slew of medications. We started out with our normal blood testing and food sensitivity and allergy testing. His sensitivity testing showed gluten, on sensitivity, but not on allergy. And then he had an allergy to dairy, but not a sensitivity to dairy. So it was very interesting, um, how his testing differed from a lot of people were people, can I just
0: jump in? How sure. can you have an allergy to something, but no sensitivity?
1: So it was based on the immunoglobulin testing. So his dairy reacted as an IgE but not as an IGG for him. And we've seen that on a couple of patients where they'll have, you know, an IgE positive for a food on the, on the testing, but their IGG is not positive. Um, and again, you know, that's why I tell patients it's really important to test both because they're two different immunoglobulins overall. Uh, And so, you know, moving on with him, we, we worked on the dietary plan of the food elimination, definitely started him on glutamine. He was definitely B12 deficient and iron deficient with his history. So we supplemented him appropriately um, and worked on, on the food elimination. Fast forward about eight weeks, he just, was in awe about how great he felt despite uh, coming in, kicking and screaming. And by the end of his 12 week program, he was actually off of his steroid and pain medicines. Um, He was still taking the immunosuppressant, but that was the next thing we were working at was to get him to start being able to reduce how often he was using the Humira, the immunosuppressant medication, but within 12 weeks, not taking a single steroid or a single opioid medication, um, didn't have any blood in his stool, his joints were feeling so much better. It was just such a a miraculous improvement. He also, in addition to that, lost 24 pounds um, because he was able to start exercising, but also just ridding the body of inflammation. I mean, it's, it's so huge the amount of fat that your body will hold on to when it's in a state of fight or flight all the time.
0: That is such an important um, distinction because for me, I've always um, perceived weight as some form of armoring and protection, you know, and almost everyone I know who's overweight that I've had intimate contact with, I'm like, you don't eat enough to weigh what you weigh. What is happening with the armoring and protection? So that's a really key piece of information that, yeah, it can just be as simple as you have a lot of inflammation. So your body is armoring up against a a big crash, right? right? Because as we know, and anyone who's had, you know, any kind of Crohn's or colitis flare where the body starts cannibalizing its own muscle tissue, it it has to grab a lot of energy from somewhere. So it makes sense that it would like store some of that up if it can. Uh,
1: Absolutely. Yes. And that's something we talk about regularly when your body, again, with this cortisol level being elevated, your body is holding on to food and sugar and turning it to fat to try to reserve energy. Or like you said, it's taking our muscle mass and trying to utilize that to reserve energy because it's not processing your food efficiently to get it into the cells for fuel uh, or we're not absorbing our nutrients properly to be able to have the fuel for our system. So I 100% agree with you.
0: So for for a client like this, once you've got him, once he's off all his drugs and he's doing well, um what kind of long-term supplementation does someone like that require?
1: I typically will keep individuals on the glutamine or the butyrate for gut healing purposes to maintain gut health, especially with a history of Crohn's or ulcerative colitis or uh, celiac disease, just so we can maintain the ability to regenerate the gut lining and the gut health. Um, So those are typically, you know, amino acids that I would recommend staying on. Now, as far as their vitamin levels, we may initially start them out with having to take iron or higher levels of vitamin D. But as we normalize their fat percentage and normalize their ability to absorb their nutrients through food, because their gut lining is healthier, a lot of people don't need the high levels of vitamin D or iron or B12 anymore. So those are things that we monitor through blood testing and find that balance of what do they have to continue to take or not as far as supplementation goes. Uh, But generally, I'll I'll keep on with the uh, amino acids.
0: And is there a broad dietary guideline that you found works for people with gut diseases? um, Or is it really individual specific?
1: We mostly do specific testing and individualize it. However, generally speaking, from an autoimmune disease perspective, we know that the five most common inflammatory foods that we see, especially in our practice, are gluten, dairy, corn, soy, egg. And then I'm going to throw a sixth one in there, almond, um, just because we see that a lot in our practice that we have a lot of almond sensitivities, which makes it very challenging when you can't have gluten or dairy to not be able to have almond as well can be very limiting or life changing. Um, But from an autoimmune standpoint, those are the, the five most common. And then I throw in the sixth of almond.
0: Why do you think almonds have shown up on the on the picture?
1: You know, I, it is a lectin. So is that part of it? Um, unless it's a blanched almond, right? According to Dr. Gundry, if it's blanched, then it's not, um, doesn't have the lectin component to it. So I don't know if that's more of where it's coming from or the fact that there's almond in a lot of our products here in the United States. So just the repetitive use of it. I don't know, I I, know, I really haven't identified that yet on why it's so common for people.
0: And do you find it in general, um, you know, just sort of overall dietary guidelines to have people do high protein, um, minimize grains, like what's your perspective on that whole thing?
1: yep so we tend to go towards more of the mediterranean style but focusing more on protein Uh, i do try to limit the grain and the simple sugars in the meal plan so generally speaking our clients will be on a higher protein moderate carbohydrate moderate fat diet obviously with the fats focusing on unsaturated fats so the healthy fats like the avocados olive oils nuts and seeds that they are able to tolerate uh, are really important and then for the carbohydrates we focus on the complex carbohydrates through our vegetables so i typically will tell our clients the non-starchy vegetables so with the exception of potatoes peas and corn vegetables are unlimited throughout your day you can have as many veggies as you want ideally cooked veggies as we've already talked about Um, But utilize that as your carbohydrate serving and and consume as much of you of it as you want in a day. As far as the other types of carbohydrates, maybe what we call the middle glycemic index. So as far as the uh, sweet potato or potentially the quinoa or the brown rice, I try to limit those with our clients. Basically, you know, depending on their, their gut health, of course, but if they are going to have the things like the sweet potatoes or the lentils or the quinoa, to try to pair it earlier in the day with a protein uh, to allow time for the insulin levels, which is part of the blood sugar stability, to stabilize later in the day. Protein, I think, is super important every two to three hours to provide energy to our cells and for blood sugar stability.
0: And what type of protein sources do you find work well?
1: I'm okay with any any lean protein sources. So I try to limit how much we get as far as red meat goes, but I'm okay with plant plant-based meats or plant-based um, protein sources, animal-based protein sources. It's really dependent on what the client prefers and what, they like to eat or what their bodies can tolerate. Uh it can be a pea protein powder, a plant-based protein powder. It could, you know, if they tolerate day whey or dairy, I I'm okay with it, although I try to stay away from whey in case and as much as I can. Animal proteins as long as it's a lean source, so chicken, ground turkey, fish, pork loin. You know, generally I'm okay with any of those.
0: Yeah. The whey is really important, um, to get an isolate that is casein free and lactose free. And then that changes the picture for people. But if there's casein in there, I mean, that's the top allergen right there.
1: Sure, I 100% agree with you. And it's, it's more challenging to find a 100% whey based or without casein or, uh, very challenging, very challenging. You have to be very careful with that.
0: And, um, For the plant proteins, though, a lot of those are highly processed food. Most of them are soy based, like are are people actually okay with those?
1: So we try to go for a a soy free, you know, through golden pea option. And that's one thing where I have to choose my battles, right? I would rather have them have a pea. protein option than to either go with a whey protein or to go to McDonald's and drive through to get breakfast, right? If they need something quick and easy to grab a plant-based protein shake is going to be the lesser of two evils compared to a drive-through or a chicken sandwich for breakfast. So, you know, of course, if we could go more Mediterranean style and whole food options, as opposed to the pea protein, that would be phenomenal, but it just has to depend on the patient's lifestyle. And with working with a lot of very busy, active parents, entrepreneurs, again, we have to find what's going to work in their lifestyle, whereas creating and making breakfast every morning may not work for them.
0: Totally understand that. Yeah, a shake is often the easiest thing in the morning to get going, throw all your supplements in
1: there, (laughs) your good fat and... If you can find a hemp-based protein powder, you know, that's good. If you don't have an egg sensitivity and use an egg white protein powder, that's an option too. So, you know, there's certainly options out there for powders uh, for clients. It just depends on what they can tolerate. Yeah, exactly. And then for
0: you, like with your busy lifestyle and young baby, and you have another young child as well, right? I how, tell me how you fit in exercise. How
1: do you make I that happen? I- I do it at first thing in the morning while they're still sleeping. So I'm one of the crazy people that, you know, pre this uh, scenario that I'm in right now, I would wake up at 420 in the morning and start exercising by five. Um, So I would exercise five to six, get myself ready, get the girls ready and get to work. Um, But then I typically was going to bed around 830 in the evening. So we would put the girls down around 738 and we were in bed by 830. And that was just a lifestyle that worked for for me. I think working out in the morning is absolutely important um, because there's no excuses in the morning as opposed to later in the day. Right. Your only excuse is your motivation or discipline to get up and out of bed and get started on it. Versus after work, we're often tired or we have to go to dance class or oh, I still have to stop at the grocery store. You know, there's so many excuses that can come up in the afternoons. Um, so I'm a first thing in the morning, get it done, get it out of the way, let it be your coffee.
0: And do you have, um, like, what do you eat in the morning then? And do you eat before you work out or afterwards?
1: I will do both. Uh, So, you know, for a long time I worked out fasted and would only do protein after my workout, whether it was through uh, eggs and a lean protein source or a protein shake. Uh, But now I've started to add a little bit of a protein before I work out. So it may be, again, a protein source as far as a protein shake, or it may be a hard boiled egg, or it may be some pro granola. There's a, a vegan protein granola that I'll use. Um, so, you know, something like that, something small and simple before I work out and then still consume the higher proteins after I might use things like the lupini flakes, which are high in protein, uh, or again, a a protein shake at this point in my life is working because I can make it the night before and just grab it out of the fridge, uh, or we'll do like an egg base or dairy free yogurt option.
0: And what's your opinion on oats, oatmeal, oat granola?
1: I, it's, that's a great question. I don't mind it. If no, if you don't have an oat sensitivity, however, I do recommend an organic uh, gluten-free oat. If our clients are going to use it, I will sometimes make my daughter organic gluten-free oatmeal for sure. I myself prefer to use the lupini flakes instead of using oatmeal because it's a grain-free option. And Uh, also is higher in protein so that's uh, my personal preference to keep myself away from oats for our clients if they don't have an oat sensitivity I say okay you can have oats but it's more of a simple carbohydrate so we need to pair a protein with it and make sure that we have a protein to balance that um, that carbohydrate there and again I often recommend these lupini flakes as well
0: Interesting. Yeah. It's oats are an interesting substance because they can do a lot of good, but then they can be not so good, especially when you look at studies that have been done on dental health, for example. So again, I think it's, you're back to that thing of listening to your own body and then the balance in terms of how much and how often.
1: Correct. Correct. And what are you pairing it with too, you know, in my opinion,
0: Yes. Very good point. Okay. So just before we close, Jenny, do you have any, um, so, and what would you say to someone who is currently suffering from an inflammatory bowel disease or IBS, and they, they just are not really sure how to go about things or how to, you know, that maybe there's someone who wants some support, they want some hand handholding, uh, but they're not really sure what's the best way to go about that.
1: I would look to see if you can find a functional medicine or uh, integrative medicine provider in your area and a lot of them do work virtually as well you know I know we work virtually with many clients so finding an integrative or functional medicine provider that will actually look at treating problems and not symptoms and being able to identify where is the cause coming from? Can they look deeper into gut permeability, looking at the gut biome, doing stool testing or blood testing, uh, and really you know, interview them, ask them questions before you commit to doing anything We will talk to every single one of our clients on the phone for 20 minutes before we even schedule them in a consultation to come in because we want them to know what can we help them with. We want to know their problems. What are your problems? Do we think we can help you? What kind of things can we help with? How can we help you? And really have them to feel comfortable that they're in the right place. So I encourage everyone when you're looking for a functional medicine or integrative physician or... PA or mid-level, whoever it is, interview them and ask them the questions and really see, do you find that you're going to connect and be able to have the support that you need?
0: That's really, really wonderful advice. I love what you said there. And if anybody wants to get in touch with Jenny, you can reach her at BermanPT.com. That's B-E-R-M-A-N-P-T pt.com. I'll put it up in the show notes as well. And thank you, Jenny, so much for giving us your time and coming on here to share your wisdom. It's been wonderful.
1: I appreciate it. Thank you so much.